You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, today our wonderful intern Maggie is interviewing Dr. Ryan Conrad, who is an activist, an artist, a scholar, a professor, a teacher, and they talk about the challenges of academia. (laughs) activism within academia, discrimination within academia, and all of the contradictory feelings that kind of come with that, with the elitism and with the fact that academia is so often out of reach for most people. And this is something that I've thought about and kind of struggled with for years. And I don't think I've done the best job personally working through it. So this uh, conversation is very helpful and meaningful to me. I just had a listen and I think you're really going to enjoy it. They also talk about queer politics and radical openness and Dr. Conrad shares his career story as well as his thoughts on working in the field of sexuality and academia and I guess the intersection of those two things and, and some of the challenges like the reality that for so many people working in the field it entails doing so piecemeal in order to to make ends meet. So I'm going to throw to that conversation that I think Maggie does a really great job facilitating. And quickly before I do, I want to shout out our sponsor, adamandeve.com. They continue to extend that 50% off coupon Dr. Jess. So with code Dr. Jess, you get 50% off almost any item. So everything from butt plugs to vibrators to harnesses to lingerie and more at adamandeve.com. 50% off plus free shipping and some other free gifts they're going to throw in with code Dr. Jess. So do check out adamandeve.com. And that's it for me. I am throwing it to Maggie and her conversation with Dr. Ryan Conrad. Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie. I'm a student at Concordia University in the Simone de Beauvoir Institute, and I've been working as Dr. Jess's intern over the summer. I initially started this mini podcast series to explore different jobs in the sexuality field as a resource for people who might be interested in a career in sexuality. That being said, during my interviews, I found that much more interesting topics came up from sex education, sex and substance abuse, sex and cancer, to racial and social justice, to activism in academia, queer and sex worker politics, prison abolition, and really a whole range of topics related to sex and sexuality. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ryan Conrad, who I know actually because he was my first professor in the sexuality program at Concordia. Dr. Conrad's really interesting because he's both an anarchist and an academic. And he'll be talking about some really important issues like queer politics, activism in academia, sex worker research, and more. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for talking to me today. How are you? Hi, Maggie. I'm doing well. That's good to hear. So jumping right in, on your website, you describe yourself as an activist, an artist, and an academic. Can you briefly go over some of the work that you do? Yeah, so I sort of go by all of those titles when it's useful to be one of them, (laughs) if that makes sense, in terms of making oneself legible in certain situations. So sometimes I'm an activist, sometimes an artist, sometimes a scholar or an academic, and sometimes all three at the same time. But I'm very much by any medium necessary, if that makes sense. So depending on the goal of what I'm doing, I'm more of an activist or an artist or a scholar. And so I work sort of at the intersections of sexual liberation, queer politics, sex worker politics, and I do everything from teaching in sort of more academic settings to running workshops and stuff in more community-based settings, as well as making cultural production or cultural work, whether it's film or video or performance, 
sometimes just visual art. So maybe what I'm trying to say is I'm a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary kind of person. And then depending on what the, the goal of a particular event or situation or experience is, I engage in, in different forms of, yeah, different practices to, to sort of make things happen, so to speak. I love that. And I think those three titles, you know, academic, artist, and activist are such an interesting combination together. Could you maybe go over how you got to where you are in your career in terms of training or educational background? I have three degrees. There are three degrees that say the interdisciplinary somewhere on them. <laughs> so I had my undergraduate degree, interdisciplinary bachelor's degree, where I was studying political science and performance art. And so I, I went to a small liberal arts college where you could actually sort of make up your own program. And I was working with a really interesting Black performance artist named William Popel, who does work about race, and whiteness, and sort of Americana, right? The American experience. So I did that when I was in the States, working with William Popel. And that was a really formative experience for me, seeing the the capacity to make cultural commentary on political things through the work of performance or video art or film and video more broadly. I have a master's of fine arts from the Maine College of Art. I'm from Maine, so oh. that's that's where I went. <laughs> and it's an interdisciplinary studio arts degree. From there, I ended up at Concordia in Montreal, where I did a PhD in the Interdisciplinary Humanities PhD program. That is essentially, a, it's a cultural studies program. And so at Concordia, I was working in film studies, in art history. But while I was at Concordia, what I was essentially doing was a sexuality studies PhD. But those don't really exist. And so you have to go into interdisciplinary programs where you kind of make up your department or make up your program as you go. So I've been in sexuality studies, but I've been in that field through the more sort of cultural side of things, right? Like I'm interested in art and performance and video and thinking about sexuality studies through looking at those types of mediums, as opposed to people that might come from the social sciences, like sociology or anthropology, who would be doing more like research with human subjects, right? So right. they would be like doing surveys or qualitative interviews. I'm more interested in like cultural detritus, right? Like the objects that are left behind by social movements like the AIDS activist movement or the sexual liberation movement. I'm interested in like the posters they made and the films they made, both documentary and narrative and performances and theater pieces that were made about those things. So that's my trajectory was interdisciplinary degrees kind of all over the place. And yeah, I landed right now. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at York University in Toronto. I'm working with John Grayson and Janine Marchessault in the cinema and media studies department, but particularly working on I'm working on a book about AIDS activist film and video in Canada with John Grayson. I'm specifically working on a project about Toronto living with AIDS, which is a cable access television series that was on in 1990, 1991. But I also teach, as you said. So that's sort of my research background is over at York. I've been teaching part-time at Concordia in the sexuality studies program, but I also teach part-time at Carleton in Ottawa, where I teach in the women and gender studies program. I teach an introduction to LGBTQ studies course for first year students. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot everywhere. But what I'm doing is not unique. There's very few jobs in our field. And there's a lot of us who are working part time at many places to sort of make a career as opposed to what would be much more pleasurable is having one job at one school and just working there. But it's a condition of academia, right? It's unfortunate there's very few jobs that are full time. 
I've taught in a bunch of places. I'm doing a bunch of research at different places and it all feels very overwhelming, but I also love it. I love teaching, find it really exhilarating and exciting to teach. And I think of teaching as part of my activism. Like I think teaching young people critical thinking skills around issues of sexuality is activism for me. I used to not think that. I thought that was a cop-out for a really long time. And I felt like I always had to be doing more, but I also, maybe it's a part of getting older and recognizing that like teaching is this really wonderful, exciting and meaningful thing that has impact on people's lives. And that's what I want my activism to be, then that's great. That's doing something that feels good in the world. Right, right. Thank you for going over that. That sounds like such an interesting journey. What made you want to get into the field of sexuality in the first place? Yeah, it's a bit self-serving. I grew up in the 90s and didn't have a lot of access to things about queer history or queer activism or even just like the history of sexual liberation from the 70s forward. I was born in the early 80s, so I was born at the height of like the conservative backlash and Reaganomics and the Mulroney government here in Canada. It's the beginning of the AIDS crisis. And it's also the beginning of a really conservative shift in gay and lesbian politics, right? From being the inheritors of sort of sexual liberation in the 1970s. 70s to actually having a really conservative political agenda in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, in the States, from demanding universal health care to demanding access to health care through partner benefits. So, this sort of more radical demand that is like everyone should have health care to people that get married should be able to share their private insurance. And to me, that's like, oh, how did that happen? Such a conservative shift that happens, right? right? And there's also a large demand for like, people should be able to get married, people should be able to serve in the military openly. And like both the police and the prison system should be set up to like protect queer people from hate crime when I think of the police and the prison system as a hate crime. And so for me, it was going to school and studying the things that I was studying was in part of figuring out my own life in a particular way, right? Like I wanted to understand how queer people gave up on the sort of radical vision of sexual liberation and turned it in for like weddings and like serving in the military. Like I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't understand like how A went to B. Right. Um, and, and so so my research, my dissertation and my desire to go into sexuality studies or to study sexuality was really about trying to figure out what happened because I saw such radical potential and excitement in the past and the present was like abysmal. I like I, things I didn't want to be part of. I felt really contrarian and I felt very alone in that too. There wasn't a lot of people that I was connected to in the sort of smaller place that I lived that had the politics that more lined up with my sort of more, I lean more towards anarchism and towards sort of a radical left politics that's like much more inclusive. And yeah, like I don't believe in billionaires, like they shouldn't exist. I don't believe in prisons, <laughs> they shouldn't exist. Right. And so trying to think about sexuality and the sort of radical inheritance of sexual liberation, which did have these demands of like redistributing wealth and rethinking equity was all given up. And so I really wanted to like give myself the time to read, write, and think through these questions of like what propelled this conservative turn in gay and lesbian politics. Mm -hmm. So I could better understand myself, like why didn't I follow the larger gay and lesbian community in that direction? And also what was propelling them in that direction? And so yeah, that's how I ended up there. And, and maybe I'll share, I'm gonna be really real with you. You know, like how did I end up in academia? I was chasing a boyfriend. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so so I applied to a PhD program in Canada because I had been dating someone in Montreal. 
it's it's interesting to have been your teacher because I'm also like super critical of academia. I think it's it can be a very terrible place and it causes harm and does terrible things. And a lot of us in it are trying to figure out what to do with that contradiction and try to think about, you know, are we changing the institution or is the institution changing us? Which is like a question I'm always asking myself, but I'm a bit of an accidental academic. I applied to school in Canada for immigration purposes <laughs> so I could live with my boyfriend and not be dependent upon him or be forced into getting gay married because that would be the only other way that I could move across the border. And so people end up in academia for all sorts of reasons. That's maybe right. what I'm trying to say. And, and not all of us have the sort of standard trajectory of going to undergrad, then immediately going to grad school. And, you know, like I didn't do that. I After finishing my undergrad, like I started a queer punk house with my friends and like then a queer punk house for like five years. <laughs> then I went back to school and took time off in between. And I also find people that don't do the go to school, go to grad school, then get a job. That have just been out in the world and living and working crappy jobs and living in the real world actually have a lot to share and to teach. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of people in academia who've never done anything else. And I think they're worse off for that. Like they don't have real world experience of living in a bad neighborhood because it's the only place you can afford to live and like yeah. having to make decisions about money that aren't great and yeah like compromise on your values because you need to pay rent or pay your student debt right and so you take jobs that you maybe wouldn't necessarily want to take because you have bills to pay so I think people that have had that more dynamic not just a life in academia but like a life in the real world are better teachers for it and so I'm glad I accidentally got to where I am because I think I have valuable things to share but yeah people's trajectory into academia can be very different mm, right that's really interesting. Those are some really important questions and ideas that you're working through there. And what would you say the most rewarding part of your career is at the moment? Maybe one thing is like academia itself is a very unrewarding place most of the time. But I've met some really amazing researchers, really amazing people that really inspire me and challenge me and get me to think about things in more complex ways that, I mean, again, it sounds narcissistic, but it's it's like personal growth. Like I have grown as a person. I feel like I have better critical thinking skills. I'm more empathetic by meeting people and like reading work that comes from people who have different life experiences, right? Like understanding that marginalized people often have a better reading of how power works within institutions right. because of their status as like a oppressed or marginalized person, right? Sure. And, you know, I'm marginalized in a pretty limited way as like a non-trans white gay dude with a PhD, right? I'm, I'm not the oppressed in most ways, but my queerness has really been what's opened me up to having more empathy and understanding how other people's lives are different than mine and have had different struggles and being able to connect with those people, read their work, engage with their work. So I guess maybe the most exciting and rewarding part for me is that I get to keep learning, right. which I think can be true outside of academia, but structure is really good for me. I really right. respond well to structure. Despite, <laughs> despite being an anarchist, I love some structure. And so, yeah, being part of academia is loud for like sort of a structured interaction with people that I, I find really inspiring. So yeah, the most rewarding part is the ability to keep growing and learning. Mm, I agree. And especially within the sexuality field, the conversations that you have with others are always so interesting. On the other side of that, what are some of the challenges that you've faced in your career? I think there's lots of challenges, but maybe some of the bigger ones are like 
the sort of structuring of academia. It's a very hierarchical place. One of the challenges is like the place of sexuality studies within the university is very small and it's not particularly well supported. Also sort of at the federal level in terms of funding bodies, they don't actually think of sexuality studies as, as a discipline. It really lacks the necessary resources for it to blossom and bloom in a way that I think would be really wonderful to have, you know, more sexuality studies scholars in universities. And a lot of people in sexuality studies are queer. A lot of people doing gender diversity studies are trans. And it would be a way to actually include in a meaningful way more queer and trans faculty, which they're pretty limited if you haven't noticed. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, like the distribution of resources are not towards things like sexuality studies. I think there's many reasons for that. But one is that it's seen as like not a real subfield, not an important thing, or it's like, oh, thinking about sexuality is extra when we should really be thinking about these more important things. And yeah, I will say just like straight up homophobia. Yeah. <laughs> oh, your research isn't that important because it's just about queer people and that's like 3% of the population. So like your research isn't really that important. Even within the field, when there is a sexuality studies program or department or what have you, it's still within the hierarchical structure of academia, which pits right. people against each other, right? So your colleagues actually become competitors for grants or for prestige or for advancement. And I hate all of that stuff. It's so yeah. repulsive to me. And it's maybe part of why I don't have a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are all real things that happen in academia that are unpleasant. <laughs> mm, yeah, I can see how a lot of those conditions would be frustrating to work with. And what about your intersectional identities? How do you think that they've affected your career? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and sort of I alluded to it a little bit earlier, just in terms of like being a queer person in the world who otherwise has lots of privileges and benefits greatly from things like white supremacy or misogyny. Like I benefit from those things simply by existing as a white guy in the world. But being queer was my opening to understanding that people experience the world different from me, right? Like straight people get a lot <laughs> in the world in terms like benefits and privileges. We can even think about, yeah, like how the state is set up to support families that reproduce, which used to be exclusively the realm of, of straight people, but <laughs> there's some right. gay people that are gays and lesbians that are doing this now. Yeah, it was it was my queerness that really opened me up to understanding that people experience the world differently. And it's why I, I work really hard to work in solidarity with other people who are from other marginalized groups. Identity isn't necessarily intersectional, which I know is the language we often use, but that identity is actually co-constituted, mm. right? They're actually not overlapping or intersecting they're all squished together and they are dependent on one another right like my queerness despite it being my part of my marginal status my queerness is inseparable from my whiteness and my maleness right so i experience queerness in a way that like a racialized queer person would experience their queerness differently than me right like their queerness wouldn't necessarily open them up to the world and oppressions of other people in the same way i would because right they're also dealing with the oppression of being a racialized person so their queerness isn't the door that opens for them but it was for me because i'm otherwise a very privileged person and then yeah i would i would add that i've run into other people other faculty other funding people who have dismissed my research because it's about queer stuff. And also, I, I don't know for a fact because you're no in these things because they never tell you why you don't get the advancement or the grant or the research money. But I have no doubt that I've missed opportunities because I do stuff on HIV and AIDS where people are like, oh, that was a thing in the 90s. Why are people still doing research on that? And, and that's been particularly important. 
to me, like my, my research is largely revolved around HIV and AIDS. So yeah, there's there's all those questions in terms of how we move through places and spaces and institutions with our co-constituted identities and what doors that opens and what doors that close and sort of what affinities and collaborations and solidarities can exist within the institution. I love that. And those questions are so great and important for everyone to consider. So you mentioned that you do a lot of activist work around HIV and AIDS, amongst other things. How would you say that your role as an activist and an academic intertwine? You know, like a lot of people say that activism shouldn't have a place in universities or other academic institutions because the focus should be on academic integrity and academia and whatnot and not politics. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to to think about and answer this question. But one important thing is like, there's no outside of politics, like everything's political. You know, if someone has a syllabus and every single person on the syllabus is white, that's political. The same way if they're all straight, that's political. And so this idea that there's something like objectivity or like academic integrity that's some somehow outside of the political and is just the pursuit of knowledge. This is like a very dated way of thinking. So I would say that everything's always political all the time, whether you're actively doing something or not, right? Like by not doing something, you're also making a political decision. And I think Eve Sedgwick, actually a very important scholar in sexuality studies, makes a really interesting argument about what she calls the paranoid position. When you approach something, whether it's research or relationship, and you already know in advance what you're going to find. And Sedgwick was saying, everyone has a hypothesis and then their research proves it. And that's a, that's a problem, right? Like yeah. we, we should actually be wrong sometimes. Yeah. And having sort of this radical openness to being surprised by our research or being surprised by our finding because it would actually get to a more truthful conclusion about what we're thinking about or what questions we're asking. So one example of this and like how sort of activism cloud one's ability to do good research as a research project I'm working on now with another postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Emma McKenna, who's at University of Ottawa in the criminology program. She and I teamed up with the Prostitutes of Ottawa Gatineau Work Educate Resist, aka Power, and we were really interested in the claims being made about sex workers and their ability to access social safety net programs during the COVID pandemic. And the sort of activist claim was that sex workers were de facto excluded from these social safety net programs because sex workers work is illegal or demi-criminal and that they don't file taxes, so therefore they're not eligible for these things. And so I understand why this argument might be made, but I... I was suspect of the claim. And so my colleague Emma and I applied for some research money to do research on actually talking to sex workers and asking them if they access these social safety nets and whether or not they file taxes. And it turns out the majority of them do file taxes and the majority of them did access CERB, CESB, or EI. And that's not to say some people weren't excluded because our data clearly shows that many people did miss out, but about two thirds of them did collect some sort of social benefit. We actually need to be more thoughtful in our framing of these questions about sex workers' exclusions from society and from social programs and what stigmas we might reify by making the claim that sex workers are excluded from these things and therefore sort of outside of the social world or outside of society and they're just pitiful creatures that need some sort of support when when in reality sex workers are extremely organized and basically run independent businesses. <laughs> so there are ways in which people's ideology or political vision can 
cloud their research or actually make their findings questionable, right? Or questionable things they do with their their outcomes or their with their data set. And this is a problem across disciplines. It's not just sexuality studies. But so yeah, I think the like academia shouldn't be academic. We should just pursue knowledge. Like that's all ridiculous. Like I don't listen to those people. But I do think there are legitimate concerns within academia around how ideology might influence how one conducts their research and what one does with their results. I think Cedric was really pressing and asking this question of us as researchers very early on to say, hey, actually, we need to figure out ways of being like radically open to finding something that wasn't what we were looking for and being responsible to it. And yeah, that's a much more interesting question, sort of weird appeal to like not be political as if like a possibility in the world. We all have a subject position. We all come from a place. <laughs> so that's not possible. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. So I'm going to pivot a little bit here and I'm going to ask you, what is it that you still want to accomplish in your career? Ooh, well, getting a full-time job would be wonderful. <laughs> Uh, just in terms of my own, yeah, I'm getting old. I'm almost 40 and I don't have a full-time job and I've been paying off my student debt forever. And so, yeah, I would love to have a bit more stability in my life in terms of a career. And that might actually mean leaving academia as a researcher or as an artist or as an activist. Yeah, I mean, the sky's the limit. Let's abolish prisons and abolish borders and decriminalize sex work and make sure that everyone has access to all the things they need to survive and thrive, not based on, you know, whether they have citizenship or whether they are an able-bodied person or whether they are married, you know, all these things that we've decided are like whether or not people get to live or die. Right. Are arbitrary, all arbitrary. So yeah, I mean, I hope my career, so to speak, can contribute to those goals of making this world a less awful place for everyone, for everyone. Yeah, so sky's the limit. I love that, (laughs) sky's the limit. And the last question I have for you is, do you have any advice for students currently studying sexuality or people who want to get into the sexuality field? I guess a broad general piece of advice is to know that academia is not an equitable place. It is not like academia is part of the problem, maybe is what what I want to say in terms of if you have a vision for a more just and better world, part of that actually means rethinking the academy as it exists in terms of its hierarchy, in terms of its cultural capital to very few people, while, you know, there's lots of part-time faculty or contract instructors or whatever working for little pay and no job security. It's a, it's a very challenging place and it has lots of problems. Like I came into university thinking I was like going to pursue knowledge and it was going to be awesome. And there's going to be all these other students there that like wanted to be there. And then I got to university and no one cared. It was like a bunch of people whose parents made them go. Yeah, no one, no one cared about the pursuit of knowledge. And I was like so disheartened by that and really saddened and bummed out. And I was like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I would wish other professors, other people in the field would be really upfront with students about the limitations of academia as a place to to do things. I wouldn't say that in a way to discourage people from participating, but to participate in a way where you understand how academia can also cause harm or it can be limiting. It actually allows you to like exist in that place in a way that's healthier and in a way that is self-preserving. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice, not just for anyone in the sexuality field, but anyone in academia in general. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for chatting with me today and answering all my questions, Ryan. This conversation is definitely going to give me and hopefully others something to think about. So again, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
Again, everyone, that was Dr. Ryan Conrad. He's an activist, academic, and artist. If you're interested in learning more about his past or current projects, especially his activism and his art, go to faggots.org. And that's with a Z. So F-A-G-G-O-T-Z dot org. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Thank you everyone for listening today. And as Dr. Jess would say, wherever you're at, folks, have a good one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.